Matthew tells us, now when the, they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Nathan. Uh, well, good morning, Christ community. Uh, good to see you all. Uh, happy New Year to you all. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Reed. And I have the joy of being uh, one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, and so again, as Nathan mentioned, if you're new, we're, we're just glad you're here. Uh, and it's really an honor to, to open God's word with you this morning. Um, so yeah, today's New Year's Day. Uh, I, I kind of have a, a love-hate relationship with this holiday uh, and that I love to hate it uh, in a lot of ways. No, but like seriously, there's, there's something about it that I, I think the reason why I, I love and hate New Year's Day is kind of the same reason. It's this, the new year, new me phenomenon. There's this kind of like belief that, okay, this is the start of a new season. I can kind of begin something new, but like deep down, like I know that not much really changes in my life. And so we all have different attitudes towards this day and towards New Year's resolution. New Year's resolutions, and so some, some of us have different perspectives, and so some of you might have this, this kind of, this optimistic view uh, of, of New Year's resolutions where you have, like, my New Year's resolution, be awesome, check, that's, that's what you, you're done, you, that's kind of your perspective. Uh, others of us are maybe more realist, like, we understand that we're not going to change, I can't believe it's been a year since I didn't become a better person, uh, we've accepted that fate, uh, that nothing is really going to change, uh, or perhaps uh, you have this, you're, you're not really into New Year's resolutions, but you're the cop. You're the one who's keeping track of other people. So you said that you would stop eating junk food for New Year's resolution. The lie detector determined that was a lie. And so maybe you're the person who you don't really care about keeping them. You just want to make sure that other people are keeping them. Or if you're a pastor and you're preaching on New Year's Day and you have four kids, you just go to bed at 930. And so this is one happy New Year's. Here's to hoping we don't fall asleep before 9 p.m. I made it to 9.30, though, so I'm really, really a party animal. But we all have different kind of perspectives of New Year's Day and New Year's resolutions. And we think that things are going to change, and oftentimes they don't. But, but regardless of your view of, of New Year's resolutions and even this holiday, we are in a new year. Uh, and we, we have put 2016 behind us, and in some ways we're kind of thankful for that. It's been a crazy year in a lot of ways, uh, and we're entering into 2017. Uh, and, and maybe for us as a church, our new, new Year's resolution is to actually finish Matthew, which, which Nathan mentioned. We've been in it, in it for a long time, about 40 weeks last year, and we're jumping back in. And so if you, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn to Matthew 21. 
And as you're turning there, uh, I want us to understand kind of where we are in the narrative of Matthew's gospel. Basically, up until this point, all 20 chapters of Matthew has essentially been this unpacking uh, of the life, the teaching, the ministry of Jesus, who has come to show us what the good life really is all about. Uh, And as we turn from Matthew 20 to 21, we begin to see how Jesus makes this good life possible. Because Matthew 1 through 20 is really all about Jesus' life, his ministry, his teaching, his healings. And as we shift to Matthew 21, Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem. And really, this journey is not to come and visit family. It's not a vacation. It is a return. It is really a coming to the place, the time for which Jesus was, uh, was sent to earth. And what we're going to be doing in the next 17 weeks or so in Matthew is really spending all this time looking at the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, What's referred to in the church as Holy Week. And we're spending a long time doing that. So it's kind of weird because this is the text actually we use to teach on Palm Sunday, the Sunday right before Easter, uh, which is strange doing it on January 1st. We thought, hey, it's kind of cold out. We'll talk about palm branches. You'll feel warm. And so maybe that will warm your spirits today. But, But I want us to see that the shift, the change from Matthew 20 to 21 The focus now begins to look at Jerusalem and what is going to take place during this very significant and important week uh, that I believe is the most important week actually in human history. Uh, But before we jump in, let me me just pray for our time as we we enter into our text this morning. So let's let's pray. Father in heaven, we pause to, to ask for your spirit to open our eyes to your truth. Lord, I pray that you would teach us about who you are. I pray that as we come to see uh, this narrative of Jesus, that, that you would reveal to us who Jesus is and who we are in light of him. I pray, Lord, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, and you would awaken us to this truth in your word this morning. May it be encouraging to us and honoring to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Matthew 21 and, and what I'd like to do this morning, as I said, we're, we're really spending the next few weeks looking at this last week of Jesus' life. And, and this morning, we're just going to look at kind of the, the, these two major scenes that take place within the first two days of this final week. And what's taking place in these scenes, the first is this kind of strange parade involving donkeys and palm branches. And then the second scene is Jesus seemingly flipping out and flipping over tables in the temple. And what I want us to do is just kind of walk through these two major scenes. And what we're going to see is that while all these things are happening, the people around Jesus in Jerusalem are essentially asking this question of him. They're basically saying, who does this guy think he is? That's really the question that's coming up in their minds as Jesus enters Jerusalem. And really, these are the questions I want us to keep in mind as we journey through these scenes in Matthew 21. Who does he think he is? And really, why is he here? What is the point of his presence in this city? And so what I want to do is, is we kind of walk through this narrative. I want us to see that at the beginning of Matthew 21, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. But before he does, he, he comes to the city of Bethpage, which is on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is actually one of the greatest places to stand to see the entire city of Jerusalem. It sits about 300 feet above the city floor of Jerusalem. You can kind of see over. So it's still to this day, it's one of the best views of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is entering, he's in this place, and he's looking over this city. And even though the view is beautiful, Jesus is aware that what awaits him in Jerusalem is not very beautiful. Because he knows that the reason he's coming to Jerusalem is not for vacation, not to hang out with relatives, not to catch up with old friends. He has come 
to enter into this week that is really the most important week in human history. Not because it just has cultural impacts in human history, but because it changes humanity. This week is really about changing humanity. And so as Jesus looks out, he doesn't just see this beautiful city, he sees and understands what awaits him in this city, which is the very purpose of his life, which is to die. And so we have to understand this, that as he sees this beautiful view, as he's entering the city, Jesus is filled with a weight, and he feels the burden of the purpose of his life, which is entering into this week in Jerusalem that we call Holy Week. So now, as, as Jesus is entering the city, before, or before he enters the city, he gives a strange command to his disciples. Go into the city and take a donkey and a colt and bring them to me. And if anybody asks, just tell them the Lord needs it. And so there's this strange, like, donkey commandeering situation taking place. And it seems odd. Why is Jesus telling his disciples to go steal a donkey and bring it to him? What is the purpose of this? Does he really need a ride into the city? Jesus has been walking literally everywhere in his public ministry. And, and the walk from Bethpage to Jerusalem is like 10, 15 minute walk. There's really not a need for him to ride a donkey in, in regards to like having a rest or a break. There is a purpose. And so the question we should ask is why? Why is Matthew recording for us in this story, Jesus entering in Jerusalem on a donkey? Why is it necessary? And Matthew shows us by quoting from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, uh, chapter 9 verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this donkey prophecy, it's strange, like, like there are over 40 prophecies in the Old Testament uh, telling, foretelling about the Messiah, God's chosen one, the one who would come and redeem and rescue God's people. Over 40 different prophecies, and many of them are just remarkable in what they predict about Jesus. But this, this donkey one just seems really underwhelming and unimpressive. Like, I mean, anybody with access to a petting zoo can fulfill this prophecy. Like, why is this something for us to be amazed by? Why should this be in Holy Scripture, Jesus riding a donkey? What is the significance of it? I think the thing that's unique about this prophecy as opposed to some of the other ones of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, being born of a virgin, uh, the details of his death, this prophecy is unique because it is a prophecy where Jesus is self-identifying as the Messiah. The thing that looks so unimpressive about it that anybody could really fulfill it, anybody could take a donkey and ride it into Jerusalem, the very fact that anybody could is what makes it amazing. Because Jesus, by doing this, is saying something about himself. He is revealing who he claims to be, namely the Messiah, the chosen one, God's instrument of bringing redemption and peace to the world. And so Jesus is identifying both as Lord and as King. Because remember he says, if anybody asks you about this donkey, tell him that the Lord needs it. But he also recognizes himself as King, as we see in verse 3. If, or that's what he says in, about him being the Lord. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. So Jesus is identifying as Lord. But he's also identifying himself as King by entering in Jerusalem on this donkey. Who does he think he is? Jesus thinks that he is the Lord. And by riding on this donkey into town, he is also declaring that he is king. That he is king and Lord as a fulfillment of this prophecy in Zechariah. 
Now, Jesus has been somewhat, up until this point, he's been somewhat reserved and quiet about his identity as the Messiah. He, he's kind of even told people to be quiet about it. Don't go and declare who I am. Let's keep it quiet. Let's wait. But it's at this point, as his focus begins to shift towards Jerusalem, Jesus becomes much more public, much more vocal about his identity as the Messiah. And the crowd recognizes this as they start to proclaim who he is. And we see this in verses 8 and 9. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now what's going on here is they're laying down cloaks and branches. This is this act of, of recognition of a king of royalty. This is a Jewish tradition. We see it. There's actually a reference to it in 2 Kings 9 where the laying down of cloaks is a way of recognizing that royalty is in your midst. And so the crowd is recognizing Jesus as king and Lord. But they're declaring Hosanna, Hosanna, which is really a word that means salvation is here. It is in our midst. And then there's this term that they use to describe Jesus, son of David. And this is more than just a genealogical term about who his relatives are. It's really a theological term describing that Jesus is not just a part of the line of David, but he is the son of David, which is a term referred to only to describe the Messiah, the one sent by God to restore God's people and bring peace to the world. Now, Matthew wants us to see the significance of what's happening. As the crowd around Jesus is basically his entourage, uh, it's a group of people coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they're declaring, Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. And Matthew wants us to see that this crowd, this craziness, is disrupting and bringing attention to the entire city of Jerusalem. Matthew points this out in verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? Who is this? What we have to understand is that although the crowd around Jesus is recognizing him as king and lord, the people in Jerusalem are less inclined to recognize him in the same way. And particularly the religious and political leaders are the ones that have reservation and concerns about Jesus. Even though the crowds like him, they have reservation about who Jesus is. Recently, my wife and I, we watched the movie Sully. I don't know if you guys have seen it, uh, but it's, it's the, the retelling of the true story of the miracle on the Hudson. Uh, in 2009, if you remember, Captain Sullinger on flight 1549, U.S. Airways, was taking off from LaGuardia. Uh, they hit a, a flock of geese and the engines malfunctioned, and they had to make an emergency landing on the Hudson River. And the, the miracle is that all 155 passengers survived. It was, it was just this phenomenal experience. And, and immediately, I mean, that, the same day, days after, Captain Sullinger is declared a hero by, by everyone. But in the movie, what we see is that there's an investigation that takes place uh, by the National Transportation Board of, of Safety or whatever it may be. And, and, and you see in the movie that, that they're trying to, they're, they're bringing into question his decision to land the plane on the Hudson. And they're trying to ruin his reputation and end his career. And, and it may, maybe Hollywood's kind of dramatizing it a bit, but what we see in the story is that although Captain Sullinger was declared a hero by the crowds, the higher-ups had different questions and had concerns and reservations. And I think in a similar way, as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, the crowds are declaring him a king, a hero. But those higher-ups, the political leaders, the religious leaders, are less than inclined to accept him as he declares himself to be. But here's something that we must not miss as Jesus is entering Jerusalem. By Jesus fulfilling this prophecy, he is not only declaring that he thinks he is the Messiah, but he's revealing what kind of Messiah he is. 
This entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey, the humblest of beasts, Jesus is entering in on this donkey and he's declaring something about the kind of king, the kind of Lord, the kind of Messiah that he is. And we see this in the stark contrast. He is king on a donkey. This doesn't seem to make sense to us. This mode of transportation that is very humble, very meek, does not match in our minds with the idea of royalty. He will not come, as the Jews thought, to to be this militant leader. He will not come as this political power. He is coming in this humble form of a servant on a donkey. Jesus is declaring who he is, but he's also revealing what kind of Messiah he is going to be. As one commentator puts it uh, in in reference to this passage, Matthew thus emphasizes what surely Jesus' symbolic act was designed to show. That he is a Messiah indeed, but a Messiah whose triumphal route leads to suffering and humiliation, not to a show of force. This humble entrance of Jesus shows us that, that Jesus isn't the kind of leader that, that, that the Jews were expecting. He, he's actually less than impressive than what they were expecting. He is far less impressive than what they had hoped, but here's the thing, he is far more powerful, actually, than what they imagined. They were expecting this military leader, this political leader who would come in and bring about the change in God's people in a way that they were expecting through military force, through political power. But what we see is that Jesus is a different kind of Messiah. Who does he think he is? He is the king of humility. That's who Jesus is. What we see in this entrance into Jerusalem is that Jesus, the king, the Lord, the Messiah, is the king of humility. A king who came not to be served, but who came to serve. A king who came not to rule with coercion, but with compassion. A king who came not to tear down his enemies, but to be torn down for them. This is a very different king than the one that was expected by God's people at this time. And the amazing thing about this humility of this king is that it doesn't take away, it doesn't diminish, it doesn't dilute the glory of Jesus as the Messiah. Just because he's entering in through this humble form of transportation doesn't take away from the fact that he is still God's servant, the Son of God, the Messiah sent by God. In in his book, King's Cross, Tim Keller, in, in talking about this very event that takes place, he says this about Jesus. In Jesus, we find infinite majesty, yet complete humility. Perfect justice, yet boundless grace. Absolute sovereignty, yet utter submission. All sufficiency in himself, yet entire trust and dependence on God. Who does he think he is? He is the king of humility. And and what has he come here to do? He has come to establish a kingdom that will not be built upon political power or military coercion, but through compassion, through service and mercy. This is the kind of king that is entering Jerusalem during the most important week in human history. But Matthew continues on and and leads us to the second scene uh, of Jesus in the temple. And and the way Matthew lays that, it looks like Jesus goes directly to the temple, but that's that's actually not the case. When you read Mark's account in the Gospel of Mark, it's the next day, okay? So, So Jesus enters the temple the next day, and we read in Matthew in verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. 
Now, if you thought the donkey ride was strange, like this is, this is weird. Like it's one of those places in scripture where like, like, I mean, we know that Jesus was sinless, but man, it sure seems like he's getting really close to sinning in this situation. What is going on? He's flipping over tables, seemingly flipping out. What is the cause? Why is he so upset? What is he objecting to in this situation? And to understand why Jesus is so upset, we have to have a little bit of an understanding uh, of the temple. And, and, and very simply, the, the temple uh, w- was built and established by King Solomon. Uh, and the temple was meant to be, and it was actually a permanent uh, version of the tabernacle that was built uh, by Moses under his leadership over God's people. And, and the temple and the tabernacle both were meant to be this symbol, this representation of God's presence with his people. God's reign and rule over his people. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness, of his power and his reign and rule. But it was also meant to be this reminder that that God was accomplishing something far greater than Israel itself. That God had a bigger picture in mind than just the nation of Israel. The temple and the tabernacle were meant to be reminders, yes, of God's presence, but also to remind them of what God has ultimately been up to from the beginning and is still at work through his people today. And that is that God's plan was to bless the nation of Israel so that they might be a blessing to all nations. That's the promise to Abraham in Genesis And that is the purpose of of, of the temple and tabernacle being brought together. It's a promise, it's a reminder of God's presence as well as his promise to, through Israel, be a blessing to all nations. And it is this very important thing that Israel has lost sight of. And this is why Jesus is upset. Because when when Jesus says that you have, "My, my house shall be called a house of prayer, he's quoting from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, he's throwing these two prophets together and making a point. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And in Mark's account, Mark actually continues the quote from Isaiah. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. What Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 56, and he's quoting it to, to, to Jews in the temple who are fully aware of, of the prophet Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah 56, which is all about God's plan to bring salvation to all the nations, not just for Israel. So the reason why Jesus is upset, the reason he's flipping over tables is because Israel failed to see the purpose of their existence, namely to be a blessing to all nations. When you read Isaiah 56, this is what what God is promising through Isaiah. Hundreds of years before Jesus uttered these words in the temple, these I will bring to my holy mountain, referring to Gentiles, which are essentially non-Jews basically, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This is what God has been up to from the beginning to bring a people to himself, made up of all, t- all tongues, all tribes, all nations. The reason Jesus is upset is because Israel has failed to see their purpose for why they were blessed by God originally. 
And, and what Jesus wants is he wants his people to recognize that they have been put in place by God to be this blessing to all nations so that those who are on the outside might be brought in and receive the status, as Isaiah says, a status that is greater than being called a son or daughter, far greater than being called a son or daughter. That is what is available to those who are outside of God's promises. And that's what God wants is to bring them in. And Jesus is the one who is making it possible. Jesus is the one who has entered into Jerusalem for this very important week to be able to be the one who makes the promise that Isaiah made in Isaiah 56 actually possible. That salvation for the outsider can be possible. That salvation for the reject, that for salvation for those who are far from God can be possible through Jesus. This is why Jesus is upset. Who does he think he is? Jesus is the king for all peoples. Yes, he is the king of humility, but what we see in his flipping out situation in the temple is that he is also the king for all peoples. You see, the Jews had come to believe that the Messiah would enter the world and would actually cleanse the world, rid the world of, of, of these Gentiles and make Israel a great nation again over and above every other nation. But what we see actually is that the Messiah, Jesus, has entered. And rather than, rather than wiping out Gentiles, he is making room for Gentiles. He's making room for outsiders, for the rejects, for the foreigner. He is making room for those who are called by us, those on the outside, and he is making it possible for them to be on the inside. Who does he think he is? He's the king for all peoples. And what does he come to do? He has come to make room for any and all that would believe in him. During Christmas, we sing the song, Joy to the World. Let every heart prepare him room. And that's, that's so good and fitting for that season. But you know what's interesting is that at Christmas, we're actually singing to the one who entered the world where there was no room available for him. You know, that there was no room in the inn. And so what we see is that Jesus has entered our world. And yes, while we should prepare room for him, we need to recognize that he's the one who when he entered our world and there was no room for him, he came to make room for all that would come to trust in him. Jesus is the king who is a king for all peoples. But there's one more thing we must see about who Jesus thinks he is in his interaction in the temple. Not only had Israel failed to see that they were meant to be a blessing to all nations, but they failed to see the purpose of the temple. You see, they, they began to see the temple as this kind of religious safety net, that, that, that if we're in the temple, we're good and secure, regardless of what we do and how we live, uh, you know, Sunday through Friday, because, you know, the, the day of worship and, uh, amongst the Jews was Saturday, regardless of how we live these days, as long as we get to the temple, we're good. And the, the, the reason I'm saying this is because this is why Jesus quotes from Jeremiah 7. He says, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. This is Jeremiah 7, 8 through 11. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, which is a, a false god, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all of these things, all of these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? In your eyes, behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Essentially what Jeremiah is saying and what Jesus is saying to the people in the temple is that, look, you've come to see the temple as this thing that you come to once a week, and, and, and that's good. You're, you're good. You're, you're secure. You, you, can, you can engage in shady business uh, transactions all week. 
You can turn to pornography and wine and Netflix every evening uh, as your escape. You can party with your friends and do whatever you want on the weekend. As long as you show up in this chair on Sunday, you're good. This is what Jesus is objecting to. And, and, and it's really, I mean, like, this is a mindset that we all have in some ways. That as long as I get here, as long as I sit here for an hour and let Nathan and Reed yell at me, I'm good. I'm good for a whole week. And I come back again. If that's our mindset, we are just as guilty as the Jews who, who saw the temple as the thing that secured them and saved them. When in reality, it's not our religious activity. It's not any kind of cultic system. It's not any kind of traditions that we've established that keeps us in a right standing with God. It is God himself through the work of the Messiah that grants us the status of being loved and receiving the title, as Isaiah said, that is far greater than being called a son or daughter. We all see church in this way, just as the Jews did with the temple. But here we have to understand, no amount of church attendance, no amount of Bible memory, no amount of, of New Year's resolutions, failed or succeeded, can ever get us to the point where we make up for who we are and what we've done. We cannot rescue and save ourselves. We cannot rely on any religious activity or any amount of obedience to put us in a status with God where he is able to say, you are forgiven and cleansed and now a part of my family. To think that will lead us on a path of destruction because what we fail to see is that we, we don't understand how great and severe our sin is and what it has cost our relationship to God. It is only he that can do something about bringing us back to himself. Why is Jesus so upset? It's not because Israel refused to worship God. It's because they began to drift further and further away and down this path that said, as long as I do this, as long as I go here, as long as I sit and listen and stand and sing and do this, I'm good. They had bought into this religious system that actually is not what saves them. And they lost sight of the promise of the Messiah, the one who would be the blessing to all nations. Jesus is outraged because he knows that trusting in a temple Trusting in church attendance, trusting in Bible memory, trusting in whatever you want to trust in other than him will lead us to destruction. Who does Jesus think he is? He is the king who has come for us. He is the, he is the humble king for all peoples who has come for you and for me. Jesus is the king who has come to us when we couldn't go to him on our own. Jesus is the king who came into this world and who put on flesh just to have it torn off of him so that we might not be torn apart from God. Jesus is the king who entered our world and became like us so that we might become like him. Who does he think he is? He is the humble king of all peoples who has come for you and for me. So as, as we bring all of this to a close, as we consider this, this amazing first day and a half of the most important week in human history. I want us just to consider some things as we reflect on this humble king of all peoples who has come for you and for me. And the first is, is this. Because Jesus is the king, humility is the path to greatness. Because Jesus is the king, humility is the path to greatness. We must see that true greatness and true power is not found in our ability and our posture to be first, but really in our ability to, to be last, so to speak. There's a reason why Jesus chose to enter Jerusalem, 
during the most important week in human history on a donkey. And he's showing that true power, true greatness is found in meekness and humility in service. Because Jesus is the king of humility, who did not hoard his power and privilege, but freely gave it up for the sake of others, we too can do the same and find that, that not only is it the path to the good life, it is the path to the giver of life. Humility is true greatness and it is the path to the one that our hearts are longing for. Second, because Jesus is the king, everyone is a potential sibling. Because Jesus is the king, everyone is a potential sibling. And what I mean by that is that, again, the plan from the beginning is that God chose a nation, Israel, that they might be his blessing to all nations. That the picture, that his plan all along, as we saw in Isaiah 56, the promise is that salvation will be brought to the Gentiles, those on the outside, those who think they are too far gone. That's exactly who God has in mind when he's prophesying through Isaiah about his plan to be the God for all peoples. And because of this, there is nothing about a person's background, about a person's religion, about a person's activities, or whatever it is that, is that has led to them to this point. There is nothing so great about their past, about their nationality, about their religion, whatever it is, there's nothing about that that can be so strong that the gospel cannot break through and that Jesus cannot undo and bring to himself and say, you are now mine. We must not allow human barriers to be things that prevent us from loving people well and believing that through Christ, anybody can become a potential sibling. We must be a people, as a, as a church, who functionally love people in such a way that we, that we believe not only that they can become siblings, but that we want them to be siblings. We want them to be a part of the family of God. We want to call them brother and sister through Christ. Are we that kind of people? We must be people who functionally love our, our, our Muslim neighbors, our, 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 our Hindu co-workers, our, our atheist classmates, our, our non-religious family members. We need to be willing and able to love these people in such a way that not only where we believe that they can become brothers and sisters in Christ, but because we want them to as well. And so a question for us to consider is this, is would Jesus flip over tables in our lobby? Would he flip over tables in our lobby because we aren't being the church we need to be? Or we're not loving people in that way. I'm, I'm not saying that as a critique. I'm just saying, think about you. I can only, you can only speak for yourself. Are you living in such a way where you're loving people in a functional manner that anybody could become a sibling? You believe that and you want that. What would Jesus say to us as a church? And thirdly, because Jesus is king, he alone has the power to save. He alone has the power to save. Just like Israel, we too have our own temples, our own religious activities and things that we think, if we do this, then I'm in, then I'm good. So for some of us, we, we, we look at our religious activity, we look at our obedience, we look at all the good things we've done, and we think that this is what God uses to determine how much blessing he pours out on us. That this is what he uses to determine how forgiven we are or how much of a son or daughter we are. We think that these are the things, these are the buttons we can push, the boxes we can check that magically make up for the wrongs that we've committed. And so the question for us is, what is it that you're banking on? What is it that I'm banking on in being the basis of God's love and acceptance? If it is anything less than Jesus, the King, who has come for us, we have deluded ourselves. 
So who does Jesus think he is? He's the humble king for all peoples who has come for you and for me. But the second question maybe we need to ask is who does he think he is? We need to, we need to ask ourselves, who do we think he is? We, we now see who he says he is, that he is the Lord, the King, the Messiah, but, but who do you think he is? Who do you say that he is? Who is Jesus to you? And, and there's not an option for Jesus to be of no consequence. You, you've got to king him or crown him. You've got to crown him or kill him. That, that's really the options we have. He doesn't give us a middle ground. He is either king or nothing at all. And how we answer this question, who is Jesus? How we answer this very important question about this incredibly important man during this very important week in human history is probably one of the most important things about us. How we answer that question is of great importance. Who do we say that Jesus is? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we pause uh, to, to just create some time and space for us to reflect on that question. Who is Jesus? Lord, I ask that you would help us to be honest with that, that regardless of, of how long we've, we've followed Jesus or, or how long we have been running from him, help us to be honest in this moment of, of how we answer this question, who is Jesus? Who is this man that has entered our world claiming to be king entering on a donkey and professing to be the one who's fulfilling the promises from of old. Lord, would you in this moment speak to us and reveal to us who Jesus is, that he is the king over all peoples, that he is the king of humility and he is the king who has come for us. So Lord, I just, yeah, I pray that in this moment we would respond to you and that you would reveal in new and fresh ways who you are that we might be able to live in light of that reality and understand that the status we have with you, God, is far greater even than being called a son and daughter. Yes, we are that for sure through Christ, but what you provide is much more than that. So Lord, would we respond to you in faith, trusting that you are faithful to accomplish all that you promise. Thank you for this time together and your word. I pray that you would bear fruit in our lives and lives of those around us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.